From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. Actor and mental health activist Siddhartha Malya has just written a remarkably candid book about his battle with depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. The 34-year-old also talks about the toll that his parents' divorce and his father's remarriage took on him as a child and his complex and at times rather difficult relationship with his father, Vijay Malya. OCD is still not a widely understood affliction. Siddhartha, who also does an Instagram series on mental health called Consider This and where he first announced that he was quitting booze, writes how OCD has affected his life. Here's a brief passage. When I got to India in 2010, my fears and compulsions were taken to another level. At home, I believed I had to go to the prayer room and pray every day. If I didn't, I would be punished. But this wasn't all. I believed I had to be 100% clean to enter the prayer room, so I would literally wash my hands and feet 20 times. If on the way to the prayer room, my hand touched something, or if my sleeve brushed against something, I would have to wash my hands again and change my shirt. If I touched the fresh piece of clothing with that same dirty hand, that piece of clothing would now also be dirty, and I would have to find a new piece to wear. Things were just as bad once I finally went into the puja room. I was scared of touching anything. I was scared of doing anything because I believed that if I didn't behave perfectly, I would anger God and be punished. The prayer room experience caused me massive stress. Then, my prayers themselves became problematic. I believed that if I didn't say thank you for everything that had happened that day, I would anger God and I would be punished for not being grateful. I believed that if I didn't say my prayers with grammatical perfection, I would be disrespecting God and I would be punished. I believed that if I didn't feel the gratitude enough during my prayers, I wasn't grateful enough and would be punished. This would drive me to say my prayers again and again to ensure that I had said every word perfectly. I would go through the entire day again to ensure I said thank you for absolutely everything that had happened. I would say things over and over again just to make sure I was feeling enough gratitude. Because of this, a prayer that should have taken me a few minutes would end up taking me an hour. It's early morning in Los Angeles when we record this interview and Siddhartha is still wiping off the sleep from his eyes as he speaks about his gilded yet difficult life. In the book, uh, for people who haven't read the book, you, you talk about your battle with uh, depression. You write very uh, uh, poignantly about your battle with OCD. You talk about giving up uh, at one point, in, and this is, of course, already public knowledge, where you just gave up alcohol. Um, how did you arrive at this? How the book came about was on the one-year anniversary of when I stopped drinking, and that would have been, it's been three years now, so that would have been 2019. I put up a, you know, a very brief Instagram story saying, hey, everyone, it's been one year since I stopped drinking. I was never an alcoholic, but whether I had one drink or I had 10 drinks, I'd get crazy anxiety the next day. So I decided to stop just sharing this in case it can inspire anyone else. And I got thousands of messages from people, people who were like, oh my God, especially from India, saying, we feel the same way, we can resonate with you. If you, who 
obviously because of my background coming from 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 an alcohol producing family if you can stop drinking then why is there no reason why we can't stop like you know thank you for encouraging us and then i was like i was like wow i mean i know these sorts of issues aren't really talked about in india and i was kind of blown away by just how much people were able to resonate with just a very open simple message and i thought well okay if, if i was able to have such an impact by just being that honest about this maybe i can continue to help people by being honest about some of the other things i've gone through and that's how the consider this series was born well and that's where i thought well maybe the book was the next kind of natural progression in 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 the line for people um who don't know the side of you obviously you are vijay malia's son you've got a great life you have you travel to the best places you're wealthy you have girlfriends um and you've uh in the book you say that when you came to india is when you were deeply unhappy and one point you write in the book that you're you immediately became a celebrity even though there was nothing to celebrate and you say i was not at peace in india can you talk a little bit about that period because the image that came uh was built around you uh was of this you know the prince of good time i think that was one of the yeah things. yeah well, i mean i was i was definitely miserable i wasn't aware or in touch with myself enough to really know how unhappy i was if that makes sense it sounds like a real cliche to say but most of the time most people are unaware of what they're actually going through because they aren't in touch with themselves and haven't done the self work. So on paper it looked like I had everything. I mean I was in parties, GQ magazine covers, this that newspaper la 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 la. And honestly at the time I probably thought, wow, this is this is cool, right? I mean, you're young whatever, but it looking back i can see that a lot of it was just superficially filling what was going on underneath which was which was a deep pain but then again i i i don't blame myself because you know how many people at the age of 22 have that self awareness anyway so i don't think i was doing anything out of the ordinary can you talk about what you were going through it was a big cultural change for me obviously i i obviously i wasn't unfamiliar with india i'd spent so much time there in holidays as a kid but i think it's very different you know visiting a place and then actually settling down to live there and um i i i really guess i felt like i had a lot of and I, again i i do have to say for your listeners i know that what i'm saying a lot of it might pertain specifically to my situation but of course that's the only situation i ha- i can talk about um so maybe the listeners might not resonate with the situation but they might resonate with the actual feelings mm-hmm. I, but i felt very kind of claustrophobic and very sort of like controlled you know like everything i was doing there was a microscope everywhere i went there was someone there like there was i'd gone from living on my own in the uk to living now in a house that had a lot of domestic help right which is a prevalent thing in india anyway and i felt like i was kind of maybe put in a cage and rebelled against that cage without even realizing what i was rebelling against some might say it was a gilded cage and and they would swap places with you happily in fact you mentioned one of your friends was, was would have been very happy to do that look i think he says that on paper i mean let's see the reality of it it's all about what you what you value and i think a lot of the time though we can have an idea 
of what something is for the way that it's portrayed until you have it. And then it's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, like I'm not making this comparison to me, but I say, but I'm going to say is that you see it with like, you see a lot of like musicians, a lot of singing. I think, I feel like this is more prevalent with young singers than it is with, with um, actors and all, but you see it like out in the West, right? Where, where a young singer will be now that now that she's blown up and she's got her number one hits and she's got 50 million followers da, 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 and everything, everything, everything. And they say in their interviews, they're like, growing up, all we wanted was stardom. And now that we have it, all we want is just to do the music and we don't want any of the other stuff to come with it. So I think everything yeah. is... Because you have an idea, don't you? You're like, wow, being a celebrity, being a star, being this, being money, this, that, cars. Again, the concept of it on paper sounds amazing. And it's not bad, of course it's not. You know, material comforts, I think everyone would want that. But then there are, you've got to take, that there are also other sides of things that come with all of this that I don't know if it's appreciated. And I, and I know that I'll probably be a lot of people listening to this being like, I just don't see it. And, and I can understand why people might say that as well. So you were living in this gilded cage. You were deeply unhappy. Uh, you also, it was also a very clarifying time perhaps for you because it eventually led to your going to, uh, to sort of towards acting. Uh, but also around that time is when you decided to train for the marathon. And, and I, I remember photos of you from that time and, and you were this, slightly chubby person, and then you just decided to, it's not easy to just do the marathon, and you did. And so what was going on in your head at that time? First of all, the chubbiness was because I was always a very thin kid, and then I went to university at 18 and just, you know, went off the rails in terms of, you know, you eat junk, you drink junk, la, 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 and I was like, yeah, I was young. Um, so I ballooned up. And then for the marathon, I was like, well, I'm going to do it. I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm quite impulsive like that. Like, I like doing things like random things. Like, if you like it, it's kind of like a bucket list without having a bucket list. And I was like, I'm going to run a marathon. Why not? And I decided to do the Mumbai one. And everyone was like, even my dad was like, just run the half marathon. Just take it easy. Run the half one. And when someone tells me I can't do something, it's like that. Maybe it's the Taurus blood in me where I'm like, no, I'm going to do the whole thing. Like, don't tell me what I can and can't do. And, um, you know, most people, I think, train for a good, like, six months, seven months to run a marathon. I did it for nine weeks, and I ran it. And then, and then I ran another one two months later in the UK, and then I ran the Mumbai one next year, and I did the Delhi one. So I actually ran three and a half marathons in the space of 12 months. Um because I think for me, it was like, I'm just going to do it. And then I liked doing it. And then I enjoyed it. Um, but today I'm suffering. My knees are <laughs> not thanking me for, for putting it through that. The sense that I get is that, you know, while, while you were unhappy, there was a kind of an expectation that you would, you would kind of join your dad's business. And there were people who were just waiting for you. Your dad is, of course, this larger-than-life uh, uh, personality and people expected you perhaps to follow suit and and was this your way at that time even before you came to terms with the fact that you're not going to join the business to sort of break away it's funny you mentioned this you just got me to think about something which I probably didn't think of before um, it might not have been necessarily my way to break away 
but it was certainly a way for me to have achieved something on my own that I could take the credit for myself, right? You don't have no one else kind of take it away or say, oh, you only ran the marathon because you're so-and-so's son. Well, being so-and-so's son isn't going to help me run 26 miles. So I think that was probably definitely a part of it as well, is that I wanted something of my own. Um, so yes, I mean, I guess it, it, it might have... Um, yeah, I guess played into the fact of maybe not breaking away, but definitely of trying to individualize myself and make myself into my own kind of person. You have, of course, a very, uh, and you refer to it, you have a complicated relationship with your father. And and uh, in the book, you say at one point that you had a, some, some time ago, you had a, a kind of a long heart-to-heart discussion with him where you kind of um, told him about what you had felt growing up, his his uh, kind of uh, marrying somebody else, uh, you know, having children. Uh, and, and you say that you realize that while, of course, it was very respectful, it was great, but you realize that your, your father sort of at that time, you realize that he lacked empathy to understand what you were going through. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of... An, about your relationship with your dad? Yeah, I think it's it's one that, you know, um, first of all, I think when a parent doesn't live with you, right, full-time, the relationship probably isn't going to have, and again, I'm generalizing here, I, this is what I'm assuming, that if someone's not there full-time, that strong rock foundation that's, you know, formed in the early years, the childhood years, isn't there. So I don't know if that's just me off. That's for a lot of people who've had absent, you know, parents who have been away for various reasons. But he was always in and out, if you know what I mean. There was no constant from him ever. And and again, I, I agree, like business was in India. We were in the UK. He was traveling for work and everything else. So I think that was, that was, that was missed out on. And of course, you know, he was providing, he was working to provide for his family. I'm not taking that away from him, but I think that, you know, there's always a balance, as I said, both sides is that then the drawback to that is that he's not there. And maybe, maybe that, 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 you know, emotionally there for you, emotionally there or even physically. So that bond that's formed in these early years, it just wasn't there. Um, and then, you know, I think personalities, we, we, we were very different. Uh, when I was in India, I was, as I said, like kind of rebelling because I was so, I wanted to show my own person. And then I just think today where I am with my life, who I am, what I value, what I think is important, you know, writing books on mental health artistically and where he is and what, what his view of the world is and stuff like that. Um, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just sometimes you don't have... I don't want to say too much in common, but you don't, you know, you, you, um, you're just very different to people. And I just think that we're, I just think that we're very different people. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong in that. I think that, I think in fact, as I say in the book, coming to that realization that we are just very different people actually helps to have a relationship because then you can have it based on respect of knowing your differences. At one point in the book you say, and it's it's part of your your OCD, 
that you talk about that you have this great fear of jails. And, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and it would be, given the fact that your, your, your father is having, has been having legal troubles for some time, is that something that, that adds to your anxiety? And, and, and how have his legal troubles and his moving to England, have they changed your relationship with him? I don't know if that has changed the relationship or if it's just the fact that I've gotten older, he's gotten older, I'm a different person, that's kind of, if you know what I mean. That, so whether the situation itself has changed the relationship, I'm not entirely sure. Um, the other thing you bear in mind is I haven't seen him or my mother or actually anyone in 21 months. So I haven't been back to the UK since before coronavirus. Um, but it's, I think the hard thing with the legal trouble, right, is that it's like, and again, this is not about the case per se, it's about, I don't think anyone wants to see anyone going, you're close to suffering, right? Sure, whatever it is, going, whatever it is they're going through, whether they're right, wrong, ill, well, well, I don't know, whatever it is, you don't want to see someone going through anguish. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing to take, right? And I think, I think, God, it frustrates me at times, of course, because again, as I say in the book, it's it's a public situation, right? It's a public situation, and when something is public, everyone feels they have the right for an opinion, which they do. Everyone does have a right to an opinion, like you know. But and I feel that whether you're a punter on the street on Instagram or you're a journalist in the Times Group or any national newspaper. You have a duty, I feel, to do certain levels of due diligence before coming to an opinion, right? You've, you've got to do your research and then come to an opinion and then be open to discuss it. But I think the thing that's frustrated me the most with his case is that, you know, you just get messages from people online, which it's not an opinion, it's just an all-out attack. And then when you try and reason with them and try and explain, it's like, no, no, no. I'm right. There's no other way. There's can't be anything else. This is how it is. And that's kind of what the frustrating thing is, isn't it? The nature of social media is such that you've also been, for no fault of yours, been also trolled quite a bit. Uh, yeah. what, 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 what does that do to you? And, and especially as someone who, who has mental health issues, uh, and that's something that, you know, a lot of listeners might might want to understand that, that what happens when you get trolled so viciously. Oh, it hurts. Of course it hurts. Um, it's, it's very hurtful to read anything about you, you know, about stuff like that, what people say. But I think if your listeners are listening to this, take something away from this, is be mindful when you're commenting on social media because to the outside, to you, you might think that you're only commenting on a photograph, right? But you've got to remember that there's a real person behind that picture. If you're commenting on Instagram or whatever, it's not just a photo you're leaving a comment on. You're actually leaving a comment to a real human being that has real feelings. Um, so I was talking about this the other day with someone. And, you know, like bullying is something that's always been a problem at schools, right? Bullying has existed since time began and it will continue to exist. <laughs> But at least I'm 34, which is not old. But when I was growing up, if you wanted to bully, if someone was to be bullied, it had to really be a face-to-face -face interaction. 
Well, now with all this social media and all of this stuff, how do you protect kids from this? That's where I think the real problem is, is that, you know what I mean? Is that how do you protect a young child from getting taken apart on a public platform by people? It's, it's, um, it's something that I think needs to be given a lot more attention to. How do you deal with it, given the fact that you're a sort of a, a, a pretty uh, popular person on social media with lots of followers? I, um, I used to give it back to them. I used to be like, okay, fine, you want to abuse me? I'll give it back to you. But now I actually just learn to deal with things with like empathy and love. Like, <laughs> honestly, it sounds really strange, but it's like if someone sends you in a message like, whatever, 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 I hope you die, and you reply back being like, dear sir, thank you for your opinion, much love to you with a heart emoji. Whoa, they can't really say anything to that, right? And I've Is that people, what you do? Is that what yeah, you do? Yeah, I do. I've, I've had people who've direct messaged me some horrible stuff, and I've written back being like, dear sir, or madam, thank you for your opinion, but do you think this is really the most appropriate way to think? Da, 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 da. And they've either written back being like, I'm so sorry it was a lapse in judgment. I shouldn't have said what I did. Some people have gone and deleted their accounts off the back of me responding like that. Um, and, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, one person, this is what I'll say to your people out there, like this is to your listeners, is that don't go and troll someone and then also have your place of work in your bio where you work. Like, you don't go and be stupid. Like, you know, one guy, I said to him, I was like, I was like, you know, he abused me and I saw his profile and I was like, oh, I'm, I didn't know that employees of X and X Corporation were trained to speak in such a way. He deleted his account because I think he was like, oh God, like, so <laughs> I think people don't realize that, you know, just there's no need for it. Yeah. I'm going to ask one question about your dad before I move on to uh, talk about OCD. Uh, is it... You've, you have obviously come into your own. You're a very different person. Your dad, uh, what has been his response to your journey? Has he read the book? Uh, he's not read it yet. I believe he got it. He sent me a picture of him holding it yesterday. Um, I don't think he's, I think he knows I'm on the journey and he leaves it kind of like, he leaves me to do my own thing. Um, it's not really a journey that I've discussed with him in depth. These journeys are individual, and I feel like as long as it's working for me, then that's that's what I've really got to focus on. At the beginning, in the book, you talk about that you thought that you had depression, and you, but eventually you got diagnosed by OCD, and then you go on to talk about uh, you go on to talk about it at some length. Can you can you talk a little bit about your battle with OCD? Mm. Well, I did have the depression. Um, I was then. The OCD diagnosis was off the back of it, but I think my um, OCD has been one of those things which has really, really, really caused me a lot of trouble in my life. Um, and I, for the most time, I didn't even know it, right? I didn't know it was OCD. Um, it's something which, and that's why in that chapter, if you see, like I actually dedicate the beginning of the chapters are really talking about what it is because I think it's so misunderstood as a mental condition that it's not really given the time of day or the respect that it requires. 
So for me, it was about just wanting to shine a light on it because it's been very painful at times. Talk about that because that's what a lot of people will not understand or know about. It leads you to do things. And sometimes it's really irrational behavior just because you somehow feel like you have to do it in order for for something not to go wrong or for something to work out. And as I say in the book, like I'm a lot better at this now, but when I was young and I was in school, I had to do things a certain number of times. Like I'd open and shut my door like 25 times, except it wouldn't be 25. It would have to be like 24 because that's an even number. And yeah, it's just, it's stuff like that where you just kind of get in this loop and you can go down this rabbit hole and you just keep going and going and going and going. And on a certain level, you might know that what you're doing is irrational, but the OCD is so strong that it makes you feel like, no, I've got to do this. And how did you sort of get a handle on it? You know, it's an ongoing process. It's, it's a condition that they call chronic, which means it can never be cured, but it can be managed. Um, and again, with the therapist, that's where it really, I started working on it actively. I started working on this workbook that I talk about. And um, what was great about the workbook is that it actually gave me an insight into how the mechanics of this illness worked and what I could do um, and exercises and stuff like that. So that the workbook was very helpful. And then, um, you know, honestly, um, I started taking some medication again, uh, SSRIs, um, which I didn't realize the SSRIs can treat a number of different things. And one of the things that actually treats is OCD as well. Um, and that's just because, you know, stress and things like that can trigger it. And obviously the last six months writing this book and everything has brought up a lot. And I think I felt like at this time, I just need something to kind of help me with it a little bit. And so that's when I started taking these meds about probably about a month ago. Um, and I'm actually happy I'm doing it because I feel like, you know, and this is a thing for all your listeners out there, um, is that don't feel afraid to put your hands up and be like, you know, what? I need more help than what I already have or that I need help in the first place. And I get it, like medication therapy is not an option for everyone, but there are so many other things one can do to look after their own mental well-being. Um, you know, simple things, even like going for a walk, doing yoga, meditating, um, workbooks. And these things are available to everyone at very little or zero cost. So there are always ways to, to, to help yourself. So I'd say don't, don't feel afraid to, to look at all different types of options and, um, you know, Taking, if you do take medication, if you do go to a therapist, it's certainly not weakness saying that, you know, at this point, I need a kind of extra helping hand. Today's episode is produced by Arun George, Jairad Singh, and Sunay Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.